Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. I am Joseph Oda, and our distinguished guest today is Professor Fiery Cushman, a professor of psychology at Harvard University. Professor Cushman directs the Moral Psychology Research Lab, where he investigates how people make decisions in social contexts. He focuses on questions like why and how did punishment evolve? What are the emotional systems that prevent us from doing harm? And how do humans make sense of each other's behavior? Fiery Cushman got his BA and PhD at Harvard University and has been bestowed with various awards and fellowships, including the APA Distinguished Award for Early Career Contributions, the Stanton Prize from the Society of Philosophy and Psychology, just to name a few. Professor Cushman has written over 50 journal articles and is published in prestigious journals like Cognition, Psychological Science, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Today, we talk about how our morals constrain the possibilities we consider when making decisions, as well as an interesting case study of a violence reduction program in the Chicago public school system. Hope you enjoy. All right. So, Professor Krishman, thank you so much for joining me for this talk today. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. So, um, today we're going to talk about what looks like an unpublished manuscript titled The Possibility of Violence. This was a very fascinating read, which I think captures some interesting concepts from the moral psychology literature, as well as related fields like cognitive psychology and cultural anthropology. So, Professor Kushman, why don't you just go on and give an executive summary, or actually, maybe even before that, what was the motivation behind thinking about how people's moral sense is related to how we generate consideration sets, or how we think about the possibility of violence and all such ideas? How did all of these come together to inspire this manuscript? This manuscript was something that I wrote when I was invited to um, participate in a workshop last spring on the topic of just war theory. That is, these were mostly philosophers trying to understand when is it permissible to use violence in war and when is it not? And they wanted an empirical perspective. This is not a question that I work on directly. You know, my research isn't about war. And so and one of the tricky things about presenting to philosophers is often they want you not to just come and give a talk, but to actually write a paper that everyone will have read in advance. And then all the time is devoted just to conversation, which is a lot of fun. But so there I was trying to think about, well, what do I have to say about just war theory? And I drew on an idea that has been percolating through a lot of the lab's projects over the last few years which is that maybe to a surprising degree, an important role that morality plays in shaping our decisions is in guiding which possibilities even come to mind in the first place, such as, for instance, the possibility that we could solve a problem, whether a large political problem or a small interpersonal problem through violence. So I want to start by just contrasting that with the way that we usually think about 
how morality works, how morality changes our behavior. I think the standard model is something like this. We have a problem we're trying to solve. There's a few different ways in which we could solve it. And as we consider those solutions, we ask ourselves whether each of them is moral or immoral. So for instance, maybe the problem is how am I going to get some money? And then the solutions that come to mind might be things like, well, I could work and earn the money. I could borrow the money from someone. I could steal money from someone. And then you'd think to yourself, well, the first two are morally acceptable. The third is morally wrong, so I won't do it. And you know, surely something like that is, is true. That's an important role that morality does play. But a kind of interesting thing is that I think most of the time, I mean, people spend a lot of their lives thinking, how am I going to get money? That's a very common problem. <laughs> it's a problem that a lot of people have. I think for most of us, the possibility, well, I could just steal some money from somebody never even comes to mind in the first place. You know, no matter how hard up you are for cash, you wouldn't think, well, what if I wait until it's late at night, get a brick, hide behind some bushes, bop someone over the head and take their money, you know, while no one's looking. It just doesn't even occur to you. And that's not because it never happens. I mean, of course, people steal money from each other all the time, and we're well aware of that. So is it possible that there is something in our minds that is designed not just to choose among the things we've already thought of, according to whether they're right or wrong, but also to guide our thinking towards certain possible actions and sort of unconsciously guide our thinking away from other possible actions based on whether they're morally right or wrong. So in order to even ask that question, we have to make the distinction between deliberation, that is choosing between the things you have thought of, and what is sometimes called consideration or consideration set construction, which means having a few options just spontaneously pop into your mind in the first place. And that process of constructing a consideration set, that is a ubiquitous part of decision-making in ordinary life. I mean, it happens all the time. Like if you and I wanted to grab lunch at a local spot, you know, here in Cambridge, and I'm sure out there in Palo Alto, there's a lot of local spots. <laughs> you know, there's probably a thousand different places that you could get lunch in Cambridge. But when I want to get lunch, just two or three of them generally come to mind. It's not the same two or three every day. And then I end up choosing just between those two or three. And that process of getting from a thousand to two or three, it's clearly something my mind is doing for me. It's happening incredibly quickly and efficiently. It, ha it works pretty well. I usually think of two or three that are pretty good, not ridiculous ones that make no sense. But it's also remarkably understudied. And so, you know, two projects that we've had for some time now in the lab are, first of all, to understand how that process of calling things to mind works in general, just for ordinary decisions like where to eat lunch. And then second, to understand how does morality interface with that process? That is, as I was suggesting before, are there ways in which our sense of what's morally right and wrong constrain what options come to mind in the first place. So in, in this paper, I took that work and was trying to relate it to questions surrounding the decision to engage in violence. Interesting. So what I'm getting is 
when making decisions, our sense of morality acts as a filter that sort of guides or predetermines the set of possibilities we deliberately choose between. This is interesting because it reminds me of what Professor Alison Gopnik talked about when we invited her for this fantastic podcast uh, talk recently. Uh, the same motif emerges in her discussion of the cognitive development of children. She talks about this explore-exploit trade-off, which apparently comes up a lot in computer science, in machine learning, but it's really everywhere around us. Um, so the idea is that in order to make a decision, you need to first of all gather information, and that's the explore phase. Then you need to act based on this information that you've gathered, and that's the exploit phase, roughly speaking. So this presents a challenge because if your goal is to make the best decision, then there's often an almost infinite amount of information you have to take into consideration. And the ever-present challenge in, or the ever-present challenge that living organisms face is how do you allocate resources to achieve an ideal balance between energy spent mapping out the structure of the world, and on the other hand, actually engaging in goal-directed action within those predefined parameters that you've learned. Uh, so she says that humans solve this problem by having an extended childhood relative to other organisms, which is really an extended period of learning and presumably getting information into your consideration sets, uh, followed by this later on period where we are dominated by this complex planning and execution as adults. So there's a sense in which this idea of having to generate a consideration set isn't restricted to the moral domain per se, but it's punctuated all around us. And I like the examples you gave in the paper of everyday decisions, like the decision to purchase toothpaste or a brand of coffee. So you said that we don't consider all the possibilities, even though we know that there are way more options than the ones you consider. Um, so yeah, for me, same. Like when I when I'm thinking about buying, say, tea, the options I think about that are relevant are maybe two or three really famous ones or the ones that have been exposed to in the past. And I'm sort of selecting between these brands. So yeah, I was just thinking that this might be a feature of how we make decisions in general and that the moral aspect is just one of the ways that we reduce this uh, complexity. Um, yeah, no, it's a wonderful connection. Um, I mean, I agree often in order to make inference problems tractable. So meaning we've seen some data and then we're trying to understand what are the different hypotheses that could explain that data. For instance, we've seen weather patterns and we're trying to understand how does that relate to you know, global events, or uh, we've seen stock patterns and we're trying to understand how does that relate to economic activity. To do full Bayesian inference over every conceivable hypothesis is a non-starter. There's too many hypotheses and the math is too hard. And so a, one particular common kind of trick is to just choose a small number of representative hypotheses. And that's going to be more computationally tractable set. And you can then decide between them. And I think Allison has suggested that um, one element of childhood is that there may be a relatively less constrained set of possible hypotheses that children are willing to entertain. And it's very much that same concern of what is computationally tractable, what is feasible for a person to do that motivates the idea of consideration sets and presumably explains why people have these limited consideration sets. Of course, I mean, if you had the time and energy to think about every single 
restaurant in Cambridge before going to lunch, you'd make great decisions. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you'd always yeah. have the best lunch that's out there, given whatever circumstances you know or uh, you're facing on that on any given day. But but that's not tractable. It would take too much time. It would take too much effort. And so a, a good heuristic is to say, okay, well, you know, what's a few good candidates, and then I'll just choose between those. And as you mentioned, the field in the decision sciences that has really explored this question in detail of what is that set of things that comes to mind and how is the set constructed is marketing. Mm. And it's because of just the thing you were pointing out about consumer choice. You know, a, a fun example is when purchasing a car, there's about 330 different makes of cars that are available in the United States. And most consumers will seriously consider about three of them before ultimately deciding which one to choose. And then from that perspective, it's kind of obvious why the field of marketing is obsessed with this step of generating the consideration set. Because if you had some advertising dollars to spend and you had the choice between spending your money assuring that out of those 330 cars that someone could consider, that your car would be one of the three. But then leaving it up to chance whether or not among those three, your car would be chosen. Or instead, spending your money, making sure that if your car was in the set of three, it would definitely be chosen, but leaving it up to chance whether it ever made it from 330 down to three, it's obvious where you'd spend your money. You'd spend your money getting in the consideration set, and then you'd be willing to leave it up to chance after that. So one of the themes that um, has been developed in the literature on marketing and consideration sets is that consideration sets are generated relatively heuristically. So for instance, you might say, well, I want a car. I think that what I really want is a kind of sporty two-door coupe. So I'm only going to consider sporty two-door coupes. And then it's possible there's a minivan out there, which if you really gave it serious consideration would be the car that you would buy, but you're never actually going to give it serious consideration because you use this heuristic, a general sense of roughly what kind of car you were looking for to get you in the neighborhood that you were then going to deliberate about. So in some recent work of ours, we tried to formalize a particular version of what a heuristic approach to consideration set construction might be, and to link it up with a very different literature on habitual versus goal-directed action, which has played a central role in cognitive neuroscience over the last 20 years. So we know that some people, sometimes people make decisions habitually, meaning that uh, rather than thinking carefully about which action is the best for them to perform, they just do something that in roughly similar circumstances has been good in the past. And then sometimes this leads people to make mistakes. Like, you know, you might habitually reach into your pocket for your keys, even though your door is actually open and you know that perfectly well. Or you might habitually walk to work, even though actually what you're trying to get is a coffee and it's in the other direction. And the reason that your mind does those things, makes those little errors, is because most of the time it's computationally efficient to just execute the motor plan or set of behaviors that has been generally the right one to perform in similar circumstances in the past, even if occasionally you end up doing something you didn't need to or something you didn't mean to. And then the main alternative planning 
is instead of saying, oh, I'll just do the thing that I usually do in this situation, you think very carefully, okay, well, if I do this and I do this and I do this, then here's what's going to happen. Or alternatively, I can do these other things. And here's what would happen if I did those. And then, um, you know, choose whatever, according to your understanding of the world, would maximize value. So habits and goal-directed planning have traditionally been viewed as two opponent systems, two alternative ways of making a choice. You know, I'm going to get a coffee. I can either rely on autopilot or I can think it through carefully. What we suggested and and what our, our studies have shown is that, in fact, people use the kind of habit-based representation of value that says, what's good in general to develop a consideration set? And then they use deliberation to choose from among the items in the consideration set. And so therefore, for instance, it might be the case that usually good places to eat in Cambridge include, you know, Stoked and Darwin's and Clover. And so when I'm going out for lunch, those three pop into mind because they're usually three pretty good choices. There's sort of like habits of thought that are now my consideration set. And then I start to think about things that aren't so usual about today that are going to help me choose between them. For instance, I've only got 10 minutes or I've only got $20, or I've got a vegetarian friend who's with me, or I've got someone who can only eat gluten-free. And again, it might be the case that given all of those weird constraints, actually the best place for me to go is some entirely different restaurant that I didn't think of. I'm not going to find it because I'm using the heuristic of relying on things that are usually valuable, but that gives me a constrained set of options among which it's computationally feasible to choose. And that choice process can, t- can do the best I can, taking into account the kind of whatever the peculiar features are of today that make it a little bit different than just a usual day in Cambridge. I'm curious about whether you think this process is a conscious or unconscious process or, or whether it's some combination of both. I feel like the, you've suggested or hinted at it being being at least both in some situations. So for example, in the example of the first example you gave in the paper was about when you're considering bringing a bottle of wine to a dinner with friends and the fact that you don't consider like breaking into your friend's place and grabbing a bottle of wine if you don't happen to have some wine around, but that instead you, um, you just choose between either going to the store to buy something or showing up empty handed. And so at some point, at some level, it might feel like this is, it could be an unconscious inference that you make, but also to me, it's also possible that you, how can I put this? It feels like, you know, that it could be possible for you to still, uh, maybe if I asked you, you could say, well, the thought came to my mind really quickly, but then I dismissed it. In which case it would be something on the deliberate side where you sort of deliberately eliminate a choice. So yeah, I don't know whether, do you have any particular position on whether or not this is something that happens consciously and what would that mean? Um, I think you've raised actually two really important issues here. So the the first of which is conscious versus unconscious. And I would say in the studies that I was just describing where people are making choices like where to eat lunch and a few possibilities are popping into their minds, in the research we've done, we're thinking of that as a pretty unconscious automatic process. Like your friend says, let's go get lunch and just you know, without your thinking about it, boom, you know, Clover and Darwin's and, and Stoked pop into mind. But it's it's pretty clear that 
there are cases where expanding that consideration set or pushing it in a certain direction can become cognitively controlled. So, you know, if your friend says, but wait a minute, I'm gluten-free, let's think of gluten-free places. Just introspectively, it feels to me like what I'm doing is I'm kind of trying to hold fixed in my mind gluten-freeness and then form semantic associates near that and retrieve those. Now, which particular semantic associates happen to bubble to the surface of consciousness might not be entirely under my control. And that gives rise, for instance, to tip of the tongue phenomena, where you know you know somebody's name, but for whatever reason, it's just not bubbling to the surface when the person's right in front of you. You know, those types of things. It's a weird mix. There's a controlled element because you're trying like hell to think about, you're like, is it Tom? Timmy, what, what is that name, right? And yet at the same time, it's clearly not fully under your control because there is some part of your memory that encodes that information. And for whatever reason, it just isn't getting retrieved and that your ability to retrieve the memory is not fully and perfectly under control, one might say. And there's a whole bunch of really fantastic research, some old and some quite new, that looks at the way that what you could think of is roughly like semantic associations guide thought retrieval. In the case of value representations guiding thought retrieval, which is the, what I was discussing, you know, we, we had focused on in our own research. Uh, so for instance, the lunch places that generally serve the best food being the ones that come to mind. My guess is that that kind of influence is more often automatic than controlled. Then there's this other dimension you brought up, which could be related to automaticity versus control or conscious versus unconscious processes. But in its essence, it's really different, which is the difference between what spontaneously comes to mind and what we might dismiss out of hand, even if it did come to mind. So for instance, if I was trying to think of a place to have lunch with a vegetarian friend, it's unlikely that Bartley's burgers would come spontaneously to mind because literally the only thing on the menu is hamburgers and they're all made with meat. Moreover, if somehow Bartley's burgers did come to mind, I would immediately dismiss it out of hand as a ridiculous possibility. I wouldn't start thinking to myself things like, well, what if we just ordered three burgers, amassed all of the French fries and fed my friend that? It just, like, I wouldn't go down that road at all. I would just think, no, that's not a good option. And it feels like th the same thing would be true if somebody suggested to me Bartley's Burgers. Hey, why don't you take your friend to Bartley's Burgers? What do you mean? It's vegetarian. I can't do that. You know, just dismiss it out of hand. And it feels to me like that's the way that, that's an important role that morality plays as well. That, you know, if you needed $1,000 by tomorrow, and your friend did suggest, well, why don't you hit someone over the head with a brick and take it from them? It's not that you would give that a little thought, decide that it's a bad idea or it's morally wrong or think how the poor person would feel. You just wouldn't give it any thought at all. You'd be like, come on, that's ridiculous. I have an actual problem to solve. Let's focus on real solutions. Now, that illustrates this distinction between what comes to mind in the first place spontaneously and what gets dismissed out of hand if it comes to mind or if it's suggested to you. How does that relate to the distinction between 
automatic versus controlled processes or conscious versus unconscious processes? I don't know. I think that's complicated. I don't know whether we want to characterize the out-of-hand dismissal. It would be strange to characterize it as unconscious. I mean, we're certainly aware of it happening. I think we can introspect on it. And yet we might still categorize it as relatively automatic. It's not that we are deciding to dismiss it out of hand. It's more like a habit. It's more like having a spider land on you and just flicking it off before you even know what you're doing. One doesn't sure think, I'd, I'd rather not get bitten. One just thinks, ah! <laughs> Interesting. So there's one thing I'd like to clarify a little bit more before we proceed. And forgive me if this is repetitive. So what we're saying amounts to the idea that in the process of generating a consideration set, we rapidly dismiss morally intolerable options, either intuitively or deliberately. It's remarkable to me and actually quite mysterious how we can do this. If you consider just how complex a computation this seemingly simple decision would require. So it feels like your mind has to first bring to the fore the set of possible options. Then it has to hold them there as you evaluate the quality of each solution. For example, by comparing each one to your idiosyncratic moral value system, then you have to eliminate the ones that don't measure up to remain with the ideally the morally acceptable stuff in your consideration set. Yeah, all of this, it feels like when I try to understand it, raises the question of exactly how our mind is able to represent all of these options, represent our sophisticated moral intuitions, and then perform the necessary computations so quickly and seamlessly. I mean, I could grant that we're at least representing some low-level semantic features, perhaps, and then performing relatively simple computations over them, because this is happening quite fast. I mean, it's remarkable. So yeah, I'm curious, do you agree? How general or how specific do you think these representations have to be when forming our consideration sets? Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah. it's a great question. Um, so a moment ago, I was describing how one way that we generate a consideration set quickly and efficiently mm. is to rely on something like a habit-based representation that is what have been good things in the past in similar situations. And then the suggestion that I want to make is that another way that we govern what goes into the consideration set and or what we might dismiss out of hand uh, and eliminate from the consideration set is just the status of something as a kind of apparent gross moral violation. Um, so let me say a little bit about the data that we have that suggests that possibility. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what we understand and what we don't understand. And I, I think some of what we don't understand is in, in the neighborhood of where your question is. So this was an experiment that was done by a postdoc in my lab, Jonathan Phillips. He was interested in how people have a kind of quick and dirty sense of what's possible. What I mean by that is that, you know, philosophers have a notion of possibility, which is, well, anything that's consistent with laws of logic and nature is possible. So, you know, is it possible that one day I'll be the president? Sure, it's possible. Um, but then ordinary people, when we're just talking with each other, that's not really the way that we think about possibility. You know, for instance, when you were scheduling this podcast, you might have said, uh, do you think that we could do it at 3 a.m. on Sunday night? And I might have said, no, I really can't do that. I'm going to need to sleep <laughs> at that time. 
you know, a philosopher might say, what do you mean you can't do that? I mean, of course, all you would have to do is set an alarm and you wake up. What you mean to say is you don't want to do it, but of course it's possible. But again, we say things like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't make that dinner. I have an appointment to see my grandmother or, um, you know, I really can't answer that question because it would betray the confidence of my friend. And what we mean is, yes, it is metaphysically possible, but it's not worth discussing. It's not worth considering. It's not an action in my consideration set. If we're facing a problem and you think I need to disclose that piece of information, I'm telling you, let's focus on other options because that one's not on the table. So on its face, it seems like that idea could be connected to this notion of consideration sets. To explore that, Jonathan designed an experiment in which we describe a number of third parties who are in challenging circumstances. You know, One example is trying to get to the airport when your car breaks down and having no money. And you got like a half an hour to get to the airport. And then Jonathan rapidly showed people a variety of different statements that could be construed as potential solutions to the problem. And the question was, which of these are possible or impossible? And some of them were things that were obviously possible, like call a friend and ask for a ride. And sure enough, everyone says, yes, that's possible. You have to push one button for possible, push another button for impossible. Other statements were things that are obviously impossible, even on the philosopher's version, you know, create a flying cat by thinking and fly the cat to the airport. Everyone says that's impossible. But then there are things which are just terrible ideas. Like for instance, offer anybody the title to your house and home if they'll give you a ride to the airport. Well, okay, you know, philosophically possible, terrible idea. Um, cause it's just not worth it, obviously, you know, to get to the airport and people not uniformly, but will often say that that's impossible as well. And they're more likely to say that something like that is impossible. The less time you give them to make the judgment. In other words, their snap default judgment is no. And then if you force them to think about it, they'll eventually say, I guess what I really mean is yes, but I mean, Yes, it's possible, but no, I wouldn't do it. And where we saw the biggest effect like that, that by default, people would say no. And then if you gave them time, they would say yes, but is if we asked, would it be possible to do something immoral? Like, for instance, what if you hailed a cab, even though you have no money, and you take the cab to the airport, and then when you get to the airport, you just get out of the cab and you run into the airport with your suitcase? And you just leave the poor cabbie on the sidewalk. What are they going to do? I mean, they're not going to leave their car and track you down in the airport. You're going to get away with it, right? When you ask people if that's possible and you give them a second and a half to respond, they're twice as likely to say, that's impossible. You can't do that. If you give them 15 seconds and you say, you need to think about it for 15 seconds before you answer my question, then they become much more likely to say, well, yeah, that's a, that's a, it's possible. It's a thing you could do. It's just something I don't think you should do. So we use that data to argue that this kind of default, quick, rough and ready sense of what's quote unquote possible is in fact constrained to some degree by our knowledge of what's morally right and, and morally wrong. Okay, now here's the interesting question. How granular and context-specific 
is that notion of right and wrong. Okay, so one possibility is that it's just a very heuristic notion of right and wrong. I mean, there's times, tragic times, when we have to do things that would ordinarily be wrong because it's the best thing, it's the best option that we have. You know, physician in the emergency room who's triaging a horrific accident, and there's many, many more patients than one would ever expect at one time. And they start making choices about who gets the medicine, who gets treatment that are choices they wouldn't make under any ordinary circumstance. But in this difficult circumstance, some people have to be sacrificed in order to save many more. Let's just take that as an example. So in a situation like that, does that quick intuitive sense of possibility involve what's morally right and morally wrong usually, not in the disaster? Or does it involve what's morally right and morally wrong in the highly specific situation where suddenly things that are usually wrong turn out to be the best? We don't know. I mean, we, we haven't run any studies on that, but now we can try to triangulate between the two sets of research that I've described. We have one set of research on mundane decisions like when to eat, you know, where to eat lunch that show that the relevant way in which we construct consideration sets is according to what is usually good or bad, not in a moral sense, but just for lunch. And we have another set of studies that suggest that our sense of what's morally right and morally wrong constrains the options that we're willing to consider. If we put those two ideas together, it seems likely that the relevant version of a moral judgment that constrains what comes to mind is going to be generally speaking, what's right and wrong, not in this specific situation, are we justified in, you know, pick your poison. Interesting. Um, and actually, because we're quickly running low on time, I'd like to touch on, I'd like to at least come to the point on the, the section on the possibility of violence, because I found that particularly interesting. Um, so it looks like some of these insights, or at least the this mechanism that we've just described, was used out in the wild for some practical intervention. And I guess a, a preface to this is this notion of cultures of honor that you quickly talk about. Could you just really quickly recap or like describe what cultures of honor are, at least in, in the literature, what we think of as, as honor cultures, and then we can go into the Chicago Public School intervention. Yeah, this is a, it's a fascinating study uh, that I learned about when visiting the uh, University of Chicago a while back. So yeah, let's start by talking about cultures of honor. So cultures of honor occur around the world and across history. They're well studied by anthropologists and by psychologists. And the key idea in a culture of honor, they usually arise in places where there's very little top-down government or state-level control. So there's what gets called self-help justice, meaning that if you want to make sure that other people aren't violating your property, violating your rights, harming your body, then you're really going to have to defend yourself. And in those situations, people uh, often form quite tight clans, usually kin-based, in other words, members of their immediate family, but sometimes extending beyond the family, where everyone in the clan is looking out for each other. If anyone in the clan has their quote unquote honor violated, which might mean, you know, someone stole something from them, someone assaulted them, someone insulted them, then anyone in the clan and typically the men might retaliate with extreme violence. 
And the retaliation might not be directed just at the person who stole the good or, you know, spoke the insult. Um, it could be directed at anyone in that person's clan. And so a common consequence is that you get into retaliatory cycles of violence like the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know, it began when somebody stole someone else's pig. The clan who had the pig stolen shot somebody in the other clan. They shot somebody in the first clan and it went back and forth, you know, over a dozen years, uh, leaving, you know, some 20 people dead. That was a very common kind of outcome in a culture of honor. But a culture of honor, you know, folks within, I mean, when we look at the whole culture from the outside and we say, here's a way to organize society, everyone hunkers down in close-knit clans and responds to any violation of honor with extreme violence leading to retaliatory cycles of violence, you would look at that and say, well, that's disastrous. Let's not do it that way. On the other hand, if you don't have the benefit of designing a culture from scratch, and you just have to get along best in the culture that you're born into, violence is your best option in a culture of honor. If you don't, you're going to either get sanctioned by your own clan, or you're just going to have all your goods stolen. And so in some sense, violence is necessitated. And the thing that ultimately fixes, so to speak, a culture, I mean, the, the thing that makes a culture of honor go away is that you form institutional solutions to interpersonal conflict. In other words, you have a government or a state that has a police force, that has judges that mediate disputes in a way that doesn't lead to retaliatory cycles of violence. So how does all of this connect to this rather fascinating study? This was a study that was done by a team of researchers at the University of Chicago that teamed up with a nonprofit that had been trying to address violence in the Chicago public school system for some time. And the nonprofit had tried lots of different things over the years and kind of worked their way towards a set of practices that seemed to work well. The goal of the team of researchers at the University of Chicago was to diagnose what had this nonprofit stumbled into that was working well. What were the, the key pieces and why did they work? So one of the key insights or practices that the nonprofit chose was to recognize that for some students who were, first of all, that violence in the schools was often in response to insults or provocation. So that is, you know, somebody might insult me and then I would respond violently. And that... That wasn't a pattern of behavior that was unique to schools. That was also a pattern of behavior that was occurring outside of the schools. And then they just acknowledged that maybe outside of the schools, that was actually an important and justified pattern of behavior. You know, if you are coming from a community where the local government is not doing anything to protect anybody and they've got to protect themselves then maybe it was actually important and justified that if somebody insulted them or a member of their family, that they would stick up for themselves or a member of their family. So motivated by that insight, the nonprofit decided, we're not going to try to send the message that violence is always wrong. We're going to try to get people to slow down when they're in school and ask themselves, in this particular context, is violence my only choice? And is it my best choice? So they were noticing that at times when people were acting violently in the schools, 
they were often not even considering the possibility that there was something nonviolent that they could do instead. And they were not asking themselves, if I choose the violent response or the nonviolent response, what are the ultimate consequences going to be? And, you know, choosing the violent response in school, there often will be really terrible consequences because that's going to be noticed and there's going to be disciplinary action, which might be restricted to the school or might involve the criminal justice system. So the intervention was just to tell students, look, if something happens, and you're noticing that the first possibility that comes to mind is responding violently, just take one second to think about what is a nonviolent thing you can do instead. And that made a big difference. And as the team of behavioral scientists at the University of Chicago studied this, it seemed to them that the really critical thing that was happening was expanding the consideration set that you had a consideration set that was established in a different context, you know, as if to draw a kind of facile comparison, I always eat at Bartley's Burgers. Today, I'm with a vegetarian. The vegetarian says, where shall we go? I say Bartley's Burgers out of habit. We're going to try to get me to slow down and ask myself, but wait a minute, when I'm with a vegetarian, is that the right choice? And if I think about it for one minute, I'll come to the conclusion myself that it's not the right choice. And I'll need to expand my consideration set. By analogy, we're, we're saying there are other contexts in which you have learned that the violent response is the best response, but this is the unique context. So let's expand the consideration set and think about alternatives. And one of the things that I found, I mean, there's, there's so many things that, that I love about this study, a really powerful partnership between people who are finding solutions to problems in the real world and academics who take seriously those insights and then try to connect them with the academic literature. It's obviously, you know, an important topic. But one of the things that was eye-opening about this study to me is that it reminded me that although in my research, we had found that people systematically exclude violent behavior, there's other contexts in which people might first turn to the possibility of violence, not because it's immoral, but rather because it is the moral thing to do. I mean, that's what it means to be in a culture of honor. In a culture of honor, it's not always the moral thing to do to act violently, but if someone insults your mother, it's sure as heck the moral thing to do. It's exactly the moral thing to do. So there's kind of a larger perspective from which it's consistent with this idea that morality shapes the landscape of possibilities that we consider, but it's also a reminder that one can't in any simple-minded way, draw a mapping between morality and violence, i.e. violence is always wrong or violence is always right, that in different contexts, we have very different attitudes about whether violence is or isn't justified. And that's what made me think it would be an interesting perspective to bring to this workshop where people were asking questions about when violence is justified in the context of war. Thank you for that summary. Yeah, I was very fascinated by this work and I had to look it up. And it looks like there's a podcast episode by Freakonomics, where they give a very detailed breakdown of this intervention. And it went down exactly as you described. They went through lots and lots of different iterations of strategies. Um, what was interesting to me about the way they framed this was that a lot of the interventions they tried either had negligible effects or were quite financially unfeasible. One of the programs they tried costs 
cost $15,000 per person per year. Yet this specific intervention we've just discussed cost about $1,100 per person per year. And in fact, I think the title of the podcast to listen to was Preventing Crime for Pennies on the Dollar. And it looks like there's an entire movement in part inspired by the field of behavioral economics, which aims to use insights from academic psychology to enact social change in the wild. Uh, the idea being that we can directly target some mechanism of behavior, perhaps some causal chain or something. And in this case, there's a cognitive behavioral component where you have people think about what's automatically going into their consideration sets. Um, yeah, I remember from Freakonomics, there's one exercise that I fell for where you are paired with someone and then one person is told to ball up their fists and their partner is asked to open it up and then they're both given some time to try and in that case i would just dive in and wrestle with that arm until it opens up uh, but then at the end of the exercise you're told you asked hey did you just consider asking the person to open up their fist um yeah that definitely got me and so i thought that this was just a neat way to bridge theoretical psychology with actual problems in the real world. One of the things that I love so much about it is that it's an intervention that fundamentally respects the intelligence and autonomy of the people who you're trying to touch. And it's not saying, well, you have a bad solution and I've got a better one. It's mm -hmm. saying, I know that there's good reasons why you're doing what you're doing. And I'm just going to try to give you some other options for you to choose between. And I think I mean, thinking way beyond the specifics of these kids in school, just at the moment that we're in nationally, where we have such profound disagreements on a national scale, there's some wisdom in thinking, if we begin with the assumption that people are coming from different contexts and the actions that they're choosing may not be the very best but they're probably coming from a place that's intelligent with respect to their own context. And that what we need to do is help them to see the other possibilities and then allow them the freedom to choose. You know, maybe it's hopelessly naive, but I do think there's something to that approach. Yeah, that's very elegantly put. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, it, it looks like we have two minutes on the, on the timer. Um, Thank you so much for this like fantastic conversation, uh, Professor Kirschman. Um, I, I hope this is going to be useful to our listeners. It has been very beneficial to me personally. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and it's been a fascinating conversation.